and welcome back or welcome to the On Coaching Podcast. I'm Steve Magnus, joined as always by my good friend and colleague, Jonathan Marcus. John, how's everything going? Everything is fantastic. All is right in our world, at least when we record these podcasts, because we're here doing doing exactly what we love, which is giving the people what they want. That's, Stephen. that's right. For the next hour, we get to forget about everything else in the world and just talk running which i love that i don't know what what can be better than that forget all the problems let's record the podcast that's what we're all about and you know what if you're having some problems in your coaching or you're sitting there asking man how do i get better how do i get my athletes faster i'm having these difficult issues with these couple athletes who maybe peak early or get overtrained or like can't perform on the big day, how do I solve those problems? Well, we've got the solution for you. That's right. We got the medicine. The Running Scholar Program, which is your one-stop shop for your coach's education, your one-stop shop for figuring out how to coach better, solve your problems, improve your athlete's performance. And we just dropped another new insight another new program which is the scholar clubhouse john you want to tell this is the that? most awesome thing ever yes we were calling it the server we were like man that name sucks we need to figure out a better name for this but the clubhouse is great it's a basically a digital virtual hangout for all scholars to connect collaborate ask questions there's different you know hangout corners so to speak or hangout sections where middle distance, cross country, marathon, strength and conditioning, general coaching, you know, culture, winning, like you name it. It's about, you know, not pushing out content, but collaborative content where everyone comes to the table just as you would, you know, at the the pub or the coffee house and just talk shop. It's awesome. That's right. Audio, text, visual, whatever, you know, the brilliant part of it is, you know, we can drop it, John, you and I can drop in a quick picture of something we're reading. And then we can discuss that right, right there on our phones. What might as well use the technology. So we're trying to trying to do it. Uh, upgrade and update. Let's move forward for people. All right. So join on in links in the show notes. You can check that out. Now this week, man, I'm excited for this one. <laughs> Because I think it's something that every coach has experienced. Amazing workouts, awful races. What is happening? And you know, John, this is great because we've, you know, I've experienced it. You've experienced, we've experienced it from afar. How often have you gone into a race and you've got like, oh man, this athlete, they're killing it and workouts, they're ready to go. They're going to crush it. Or even as a race director, John, I'm sure you see this all oh. the time. Oh, I've gotten, you know, texts from coaches and agents. Hey, this athlete just did this. They're put them in the top heat. They're going to do this. And then boom, lays a fat egg. It's pretty wild. It's pretty wild. So what we're going to do is maybe reminisce about a couple of these and then break it down on where is the disconnect? Why don't we have the transfer? And... At some point in the podcast, I'm going to drop a conversation I just recently had with Matthew Centrowitz at the track about his American record attempt of the mile, his performance at the Olympics, 
and the workouts he was doing le doing leading up to that, which crazy, and probably actually the reason that spurred this topic of conversation for this podcast. So oh, it's gonna man. be a treat. Yes, man, look at that tease, John. It's, mm. it's like you're a pro at this now, teasing so that you get the listener. <laughs> All right. Um. <laughs> All right, so let's let's start this. You know, I'm gonna reminisce again a bit, and whenever this topic comes up, John, what immediately comes to my mind is actually when I was working with Sarah Hall in her first marathon. And you know, Sarah's a wonderful person, has gone on to do some great things, did some great things when I was coaching her, has done amazing things with Ryan coaching her. Um, but it's it it was all it was very fascinating because. You know, this was the beginning of my marathon coaching career. And Sarah was crushing workouts. And it's not just me saying she was crushing workouts. Like, I remember Ryan texting me one day and being like, Steve, I think Sarah can come close to the like the, the U.S. debut record. You know, like that's what kind of shape she's in. And this is Ryan Hall, right, who has the experience of running marathons and seeing and knowing what what translates and 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 what certain workouts do and i remember specifically we did this gosh she was down in houston we did this 10 plus mile you know tempo run i was back it was when i was in shape one of my former teammates who was an all or just off all american represented his country at world cross marcel came out and sarah does this 10 mile tempo Houston, Texas, not the best conditions, humid as heck, and just crushes it. Like sub 530 pace or about there, like just looking easy, killing it. My teammate Marcel dropped, had to drop, or my former teammate Marcel had to drop from her. Like I remember finishing that. The college kids came out and watched, and they're like, holy crap, like this girl is fit. Like she's going to crush, you know? And there were other workouts leading up to it where I'm just like, oh, this girl's going to crush. Like, we got it. And then she, you know, bonked in the marathon. And whoops. <laughs> that was really tough. Talk about like ego deflating on my side, but more so like just feeling bad. Because Ryan also, that was LA Marathon. Ryan also ran it and, and dropped out. That was right at the tail end of his career. And we're sitting here being like, oh my gosh, like Sarah bonked, ran horrible. Um, Ryan like dropped out. You know, Sarah was in the little medical tent for some dehydration, all that stuff. And you're just sitting there being like, holy crap, this sucks. Like what in the world went wrong? It's a tough place to be. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it... You said, Steve, you feel ego deflated. You feel like you don't know what the hell you're doing as a coach. Like all these data points in practice and training. And then it's, it's. I mean, my experience is it's just demoralizing, infuriating, frustrating. You know, you kind of sometimes throw a little pity party afterwards. You go, I don't know what I'm doing. This is dumb. <laughs> yes. The pity, the pity party is 100% correct. So it's real. You know, it's it, harsh. It's real. And I think, okay. So going through that experience with Sarah and others, I think, you know, as a coach, it's very easy to be like, well, the workouts were great. 
Like, it must be your problem. Like, what in the world? You didn't, it must be like mental. You're a head case, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Oh, that's a common response, right? Yeah. Just throw it back on the athlete and put them at fault. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Mm. I mean, that, that is, that is like, don't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> that's, that comes straight from your ego and defensiveness, right? Mm-hmm. Because you're sitting here like, well, workouts did great. You crushed it. Like, everything pointed to this. Like, I don't know what your problem was, you know? But that's a huge mistake because it leads you to um, a like you're shifting the blame, which gives you the out for investigating and finding out the actual truth and actual like, hey, what's the disconnect? And B, it lowers that trust with the athlete because the athlete is sitting there being like, hey, I just gave it my all. I gave everything I had and it wasn't there like. I don't know what you're trying to do. And if, you know, and you can put that idea that they're a head case in their head, actually, because, well, they'll be like, you know, they're vulnerable. They'll be like, what? Well, maybe it is my fault. Like, what in the world happened? Blah, blah, blah. So the worst thing you can do is throw it back at the athlete in that moment. Yeah, that I mean, it's kind of what you want to do, right? There's a uh, a great uh I just got done reading the Trillion Dollar Coach about um, Bill Campbell, the former Ivy League football coach turned coach to CEOs and chair and board members in Silicon Valley. Like, you know, we're talking Steve Jobs, Google, you know, CEOs, you name it, right? And in the book, they related a a time when he was really frustrated at a loss because he's coaching my alma mater, Columbia football, and they've always sucked. So it's not his fault, but so they lost a, you know, maybe a game and he was really frustrated by it and he just chewed them out. He yelled at them, right? It wasn't collaborative. It wasn't let's rally around. Let's build them up. Like, I love you. You know, it was just upset, vented and frustrated. And he said, once I did that, I lost that team for the rest of the season. And they just went on a continual nosedive. Because as a coach, we always have to remember you are a leader. And leaders are always being looked at as models. And whether you think what you say has import or not, it does to that athlete and that individual you're working with. So you have to be very careful about how you deliver that message. And when you have that reactionary, egotistical venting and frustration, it's a very, very quick way to lose the confidence and faith of the athlete when they're at a really vulnerable time as well, because they know they should perform well. They were excited. They were hyped up versus if you step back, take a minute, give them that pat on the back, the big bear hug, what have you, and like, hey, better luck next time approach, you maintain their trust. And that's really the key is to any athlete-coach relationship is building and maintaining trust and it's hard to do and easy to lose yep exactly it's that trust part that is is so important and i think you 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 know hit on a important point point here which is after really tough races like this where we have high expectations going in and they fail to meet our expectate or we fail to meet our expectations like that is our most vulnerable part point you know we are incredibly vulnerable so things that you say there like can be very damaging. It's in a lot of ways, it's no different than like being in a relationship. And when your significant other is, you know, at a very vulnerable point, you don't kick them when they're down, right? 
that just damages the relationship and you know puts it in a very negative bad spot so the same holds true with athletes don't kick them when they're down like even if your ego is pushing you to, towards it like you as a coach have to step back because ultimately you know the goal is what if you have these amazing workouts and then awful races, your goal as a coach is to figure out why the disconnect occurred. What like what caused it not to happen, which we can go into a couple different reasons or commonalities there that we often see. But your goal is to get to that point. So in the immediate aftermath, don't blame the athlete. Like reassure, you know, Often what I do is say, hey, I don't know, you know, which is being vulnerable. I don't know what happened. That was a shit show. Like, I don't know. It's not your fault. Like, I know you tried. Um, but what I can tell you is, you know, I'm going to go back and look at stuff and analyze stuff. And we're going to try and figure it out. And we'll, you know, we'll figure it out best we can and, and come up with an answer so that hopefully this doesn't occur in the, in the future or next time. Yeah, I think that's the most important point is when you're in that state of shell shock right after the race and it just went horribly south and you have no idea why. You have all these other data points, whether it's previous races, building a fitness. We like this idea of this like neat linear progression, right, with no um, valleys. But the reality is there's a lot of valleys, you know, as we ascend to higher peaks and they come at the most inopportune times, unfortunately, right, when things are on the line. When it's like, oh, we spent all this budget just to go to this one meet for you to get this one qualifying time, right? And all this pressure is being put on you and, oh, they just can't perform under pressure. You know, uh, those types of situations are where, again, this shell shock that we talk about can lead to these, these knee-jerk reactions that can really create fissures in that relationship and that trust. And Steve, you said exactly what you need to say. You can go, I don't know. I don't know why it's happened let's take some time and process it. And it's the most important thing you can do is affirm their value as an athlete and a person to you, right? That is the number one thing to do, affirm their value and affirm the value of their work and affirm the trans potential translation of the work they've done. Because it can be a catastrophic moment where then they just completely like, you know, we talked about before, throw in the towel for the rest of the season, throw lose the faith in you as a coach you know what have you so it's very important to be level-headed and pragmatic and unemotional so those biases get, don't get in the way even though you may want to scream and shout and be like you messed that up you went out way too fast you know it's like don't do it don't do it <laughs> like you forgot to take you know uh, uh, my wife in her only debut marathon you know we uh, decided upon doing it kind of like in a Sarah Hall type fashion, like, okay, you're really fit, you know, a great track season. She ran the 10K at USA's, you know, best shape of her life. And then Eugene Marathon that year was in the summer, six weeks away. I'm like, well, let's extend this. Like, okay, hey, we don't need to run fast. We just need to work on extension. And so training was going really well. You know, everything went really awesome building into it. And, you know, I was actually her pacer the whole time. Like that's, you know, I could just, all right, we want to just qualify for Olympic trials. That was the aim, right? Not running crazy mark. But what happened was on race day, again, it was a mid, late July in Eugene. So kind of hot, hotter in the morning. She missed her hydration fluids at the 10K early on, right? 
And we know that that lack of early hydration can compound exponentially throughout the course of the marathon. It may not seem like a big deal 10K in because you're like, oh, I feel great. But again, the marathon, as we know from a hydration feeling standpoint, is about creating as best a homeostatic environment and accelerating fatigue and, um, you know, elevated conditions of effort. So that reared itself where mile 21, 22, hardcore bonk, hardcore bonk. And I was like, you know, she was swearing, she was frustrated, you know, started walking. I said, hey, let's just get to this rest stop here at mile 22, eat all the gummy bears or Sour Patch Kids, that's why they're there, get some Gatorade and you just down it, I don't care. And then about 10 minutes later, you know, at mile 24, 25, she started to feel good again and actually sped up and finished. Now, she ran 250 for her was a complete failure in her part, right? You know, lacked a lot of confidence in the marathon because of it. I could have compounded everything by saying, well, you messed it up by missing that hydration stop at, at, uh, in your fluids at 10K. Like, that's on you, you know. But I didn't. I said, hey, look, that's tough learning curve. First time out, like you learned a really important value, doesn't diminish all your achievements and your hard work and your race results prior. Like we try to go after some low hanging fruit, but we end up getting a, a really valuable learning experience out of it, right? So reframing it was key, even though, you know, part of the big reason was, yeah, it was a lapse in judgment in her part, but also because she was a rookie at that distance. Yep, exactly. I mean, I think that it's like knowing when to step in and help and when to say things versus not. And that that's the key, right? Is it can be very frustrating from the, the person on the side of the coach to be like, oh, why didn't you do this? But the reality is there's a time to say that and a time not to say it. Again, just like in relationships and arguments, there's a time to say things and a time not to say things. Same is true with coaching athletes. So, you know, we've gone over, okay, how I, this occurs. How do you handle it in terms of, you know, in the immediate aftermath? Well, now why don't we dive into um, looking at what happened, right? And some of the commonalities or common situations we've seen. And I'll throw one out there. I'll throw one out there and we'll go kind of go through these is... What often happens is when you see amazing workouts and then often awful races is they have left their race in the workouts. What does that even mean, Stephen? That <laughs> I like how you're you've, you're now calling me Stephen. Like yeah, just for today. I it's it it's like you're my parents. <laughs> I hear my, my dad just, Stephen! Um, what does that even mean? I hear it all the time. Um, Anyways, so you leave your race in the workouts. What does that mean? Is if you look at this whole, well, let's let's break it down scientifically. One of the models for adaptation is what we call the fitness fatigue model. Ah, yes, the two-factor three model. Yes, hmm. and what they say there is you gain fitness when you do workouts, but you also accumulate fatigue, and you can only see or express the fitness, you know, um, as much fitness as when the fatigue is not there. So the, the gap between the fitness and the level of fatigue. So what you want to do is you want to gain enough fitness, but then give yourself enough time 
so that the fatigue dissipates, but the fitness does not. So the fatigue goes away. Fitness stays relatively high. You can now express all of your fitness. If the fatigue is still there, you can't express all of your fitness. Okay. So what do we mean leaving your race and practice? It's pretty simple. Is yes, we've got this high level of fitness built up, but we've also, because of how the training has maybe arranged and maybe the density of it, or maybe how, how far we've pushed things, we've set our training up. So the fitness hasn't, or the fatigue, sorry, the fatigue hasn't had an opportunity to dissipate, clear out so we can express all our fitness. And that is, that is the essence of leaving your workouts in practice or leaving, sorry, leaving your race in practice because your fitness is there, but you just can't express it because, you know, you've got all this accumulated lingering fatigue, hiding things so that, you know, when you show up on race day, you dig deep, it ain't there. This is a great point. And I think we need to just go on a tangent and dive deep into this because this is Probably in my, you know, experience where nine out of 10 of the errors happen is not appreciating the import of this reality enough. And this kind of goes back to the teaser I gave talking to Central at the track the other day. So, you know, he, what spurred the American record attempt was the week of workouts he had like a week or two before he actually went to try to break Allen's record in the, the mile, which you know, I asked him, go, man, how was it? He goes, that was really hard. I go, yeah. And he didn't have super shoes. He goes, mind boggling. Like, you know, Central was like telling me like when he was in the middle of it, he goes, I have no idea how Alan could do this. But remember, Alan's training was really, 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 really smart and really good. Hats off to Rasco. And again, we're coming, famous plug here in the Running Scholar program with a deep dive look at his training here in the next couple of months will be awesome. Anyways, back on topic. So that's what gave them the impulse to say, hey, let's go after this. Because he had some really good workouts. He ran a really, really fast 1K. You know, uh, he actually says 215, which would be the number two time 1K of Americans all time. So he ran this in practice, right? And like, oh, you know, you're crazy fit. But what happened was, we have that, if we remember the fatigue fitness two-factor model, he was talking about this compounding interest of fatigue. He's never been neurologically and physically capable of doing that. And so even though the body might be like, hey, yeah, I can do it. You then have the mechanical load of running that fast of the tissues. You then have the neurological load, which is like, this is brand new learning at that type of rapid speed. So that recovery time horizons a little bit longer because it's radically new learning that you're subjecting the the system to right and we gotta remember as Lydia famously says and Canova famously says you know it's about the reaction to training that's what we're going after the effect it's not what you do it's what is the effect or reaction so every you know difficult uh, workout has a reaction or effect and the time horizons aren't necessarily known. So here we are, you know, and again, the rule of fitness too is when you're more fit, you can do higher density and higher intensity of stuff and get away with it because you have all this fitness. However, you have to let the recovery 
manifest. And so he said, upon review, I just made too many recovery errors. And I, he was like, I was actually under recovered going into that American record attempt in the mile. And then he gets on the plane the next morning to go to Honolulu for training camp at 7 a.m. Has to get up at 5 a.m. Didn't get to bed until 3 a.m. Because he was so amped up from this, you know, 9, 30, 10 o'clock, uh, you know, time trial race, right? I mean, you just, you're, you're, you're amped. You took caffeine. Like, it's just not happening. So now he compounds things. He's flying across the Pacific on two hours of sleep. Not good. And so what he said is like, if I had to do it all over again, I realized it wasn't fitness that, you know, lack of fitness preparation that did me in at the Olympics or with that American record attempt. What it was, was a lack of recovery. I would have took another one or two days after the American record attempt and then gone to Honolulu. I would have took another one or two days after that time trial before I tried to do that American record. It's just that density was too high. So what he suffered from was a common um, error we all make, which is, you know, getting so excited about what people are doing in practice and capable of doing, and then not making the calculation about what is that the actual recovery horizon here. And this is where going back to why Alan was so successful, was you look at the foundation of work he did. The foundation is everything. And what do we mean by that? Like people call it the base or base training, right? But the foundation is the thing that elevates and creates stability. So the longer your foundation of work and the higher grade that foundation is, the more you can use it as a springboard to elevate to a higher peak, right? This is nothing new. This is nothing exciting. But a lot of times now we're fast forwarding over that. And so what does foundation means? Well, if you look at Alan's training, very unimpressive times for the most part with some punctuations of very impressive sessions. So he would always be like, yeah, I didn't really run fast 200s except every now and again, but a lot of 200s at 30, 29, 28, a lot, a lot. Like I cannot tell you how many, and it was always in control. And this is the difference is submaximal work is that sweet spot of work, which is around 85% of our work capacity, but you're in control. So when Alan's running 10 or 20, you know, in 2007 by um, a quarter, at 60 to 50, you know, five, it's with a lot of control. He's not like, you know, lighting every, you know, the forest on fire. Then at the end, he can run that 50 flat. Why? Because the first 19 quarters were actually under a lot of control. This is the biggest error I see, um, you know, intermediate or club level or novice or recreational athletes make versus like legitimate pros. You know, a lot of people think every workout has to be as hard as possible workout to get the stimulus versus the pros realize, no, I just got to get really good and raise what my 85% is. So if you start off a year and you're 85% for 10 times a quarter, let's say with 400 jog is 70. Well, the base, the, the elevation of the base is when that 85% effort translates to 60 766, right? And that's what you want to see is like you're not having to go to the well every workout. And so this is what happened with Centro. Inexplicably, he went really close to the well by trying to do 
very difficult things, very fast things with a real high density. He thought he could do it because he had the fitness, but that fatigue just started to accelerate and compound. And it's not linear. That's why we make that um, miscalculation where under recovery can happen and turn to overtraining real quick. And so it just compounded, compounded, compounded. And then he didn't realize it until he was at Tokyo and he goes, oh shit, I just don't have the legs for this. Even though his body of work leading into it was, you know, like he said, he told me like, man, it's the best series, you know, of workouts I had since from, you know, for after Olympic trials, um, going into Olympics. But this is what we have to understand how important that foundation is and how important the correct understanding of your foundation is. And what you really need to do is not go all out all the time, very rarely actually, but elevate that sub max or that 85% to raise your foundation so you can have better recovery. You know, one of the things I love, and I'm going to give a, a teaser for our future Alan Webb uh, related scholar program course is if you look at Rasco's training is almost every workout starts slow. Yes. You know, mm -hmm. like it, like if he's doing 20 by 400 <laughs> or he's doing a bunch of 800s, like the first couple, especially for someone of Alan's ability, is it that fast? You know, not impressive. Like the, I compared two workouts. I was looking at this recently. One I watched with Galen Rupp with Alberto era doing 10 times 800 and one in the training log of Rasco and Allen doing Galen starts, starts step one at like 202. Yeah. And then gets down to, you know, 150, whatever, five or Allen starts at 210, 212. <laughs> exactly. And that, you know, it's funny. That's like whenever I was training with Allen, that was what allowed me to train with Alan. Yeah. Because <laughs> he'd, you know, he'd do, he'd start at 212. And I'm like, oh, I got this. I got this. So I, for the first six, seven of them, I'd be fine, you know? And then once he got down cranking, you know, it, I'd be not fine and done. But because like you're that 212 for him was like 50%, 60% effort. But for you, you're already starting off at like 85%. Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's interesting that, and the other part that I, I think is important here is as that pace goes down often on Rasco style workouts, he gives just a little bit more rest. Yes. More recovery. Mm -hmm. yep. Just a smidge, just a smidge. You know, sometimes it's literally like you get 15 seconds extra rest. Yes. <laughs> you know, 50. Yep. And it's not a huge deal, but it's like this, this, and I think, you know, that extra rest accumulating as the pace comes down is also what uh, often allowed Alan to get that last let's say 50 second quarter or that last you know low, low 150 800 that he sometimes would do at the end of this workouts wasn't all the time but occasionally you'd see oh well he's getting accumulating longer rest and well he might have started out at one minute you know he's up to two and a half minutes rest before this final you know cranking and that is like just enough to allow him to get under get his legs back get ready to crank and he's not writing that line which is often what happens so much you know it was insurance it was just like the right amount of insurance and you know other coaches alan worked with later in his career didn't give him that insurance and he would often leave workouts you know blowing up or feeling exhausted because like 
you got to keep the recovery at this much, no matter what. And we want you to run faster. And he's like, this is impossible. I can't do this. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So just a little, little hint or teaser in there as well that I think is often, often missed. But I think, you know, getting back. The nuance is incredible. Yeah. Yes. I mean, you know, Rasco still is in my top three middle distance coaches of the 2000s, along with, you know, Cook, John Cook and Vin Lanana. Yeah. I mean, yep. A nice, nice group there. But so getting back to that Centro, you know, uh, example, which I think is amazing, which is also often what happens is we, we ride that line and we gain this confidence from being able to do crazy things that all of a sudden we feel almost like superhuman, right? And you're super fit. You're absorbing more training. When you're super fit, you can handle more training. Every workout is an A+. You're just like, you know, you get excited. Let's see what we can do this time. You ride that line, you ride that line. But the thing is, we're all humans, right? And if we don't have external help, like we, it eventually comes back to bite us, you know? And, and that is often what you see when you see amazing workouts, awful races is you've got this amazing period and you've tried to, you've almost, it's almost like you get greedy, Right. You've gotten greedy in the sense that we're like, oh man, look at this workout. Oh, look at this race. Look at look at what we can do. And you forgot or disobeyed the laws of recovery and that balance. And now you're out of luck, running slow or crater at the end, you know? Yeah, it's sometimes we get carried away by the numbers too, right? So, you know, and going back to this foundational component, um, I mean, so one thing that comes to mind immediately is like my work with Tara Welling in when I first started coaching her, she was coming from a long period of injury cycle. So on, off, on, off, on, off. And she wanted to go right into road racing that summer that I just started working. With. I said, don't do it. Don't do it. You need like six months. She's very stubborn, you know, and I was like, well, it's your career. Okay, fine. You know, she went to road racing and just getting 15th, 16th at like New Haven, uh, Falmouth, just not fun, right? Doing workouts and breaking down at the track because she's so slow, in her opinion, right? This is just, you know, after coming from the Oregon Project, to me, it was like a much different training philosophy, right? But I was like, you have no foundation. Like, you're going to suck for a little while. Like, we just need to get six months of uninterrupted, good, solid training under your belly and your belt. So, like, you can actually, like, do something with that, you know, um, in workouts at races. And then finally, sure enough, you know, she acquiesced and said, all right, fine, I'm all in. And after six months, boom, magically, just like, you know, the bun come out the oven, just ready to go, right? Because that foundation was there. However, <laughs> the thing was, too, even though the foundation was elevated, the recoverability was not necessarily accelerated because her the expectation and difficulty of workouts raised concurrently with her increase in fitness. So the same severity of fatigue was being felt. And I understood this, right? And there were a lot of times you come back from an altitude training period of a month and just couldn't complete workouts for like two weeks, which was totally fine. It was a signal to me that was like, oh, she's under recovered the burden of altitude, even though there's a lot of fitness that was gained in that one, uh, one month block of that training camp, 
is still lingering. So I was like, all right, we won't do this workout. We won't do that. Right. And so you look at the number of workouts, nothing indicated from any kind of tables, progressions, whatever the capability of saying, oh, for sure you can run 32 flat for 10 K for sure. You can, you know, run, you know, 15 twenties for 5 K nothing said that, but the culmination of the foundation combined with just enough work, right? Some mile repeats at five flat on short recovery, some really fast, you know, for her quarters at 60 some odds with like generous recovery. It was enough stimulation to, because she was coming from this really strong foundation to set her up for success. And that sometimes I think is what does this in as athletes and coaches. We make these nice linear progressions or we extrapolate out, well, they did this in practice and they ran this for this and this. And they go, oh, because I had an athlete who you know, ran similar times, you're ready to go for this, right? It's not necessarily the same case because we have to look at the review. We have to review where they're coming from, but then also have a really good preview of where they're going to based on the interpretation of how deflating, how stressful is not just the work, but also everything surrounding them, right? Much different profile if you're going into a a time trial type meet in the middle of spring for a scholastic athlete versus if you're going into championship meets that are right around finals, right? There's a different level of stress and burden there. And that's where I think the nuance is really key to understand this. So you don't make that very superficial linear judgment error. Yep. I think, you know, I think that nuance, um, it's like anything. The nuance is where the the magic is. You gotta you gotta go deep to understand it, or else you make these these errors, or you know they fall for these biases that we have, like this linear thing. The other thing that I'd I'd mention as well in that that is related is the timing of adaptation varies, right? Mm-hmm. And sometimes when you see this, like, well, amazing workouts, awful races. It's because the athlete has not had enough time to like absorb all the work and translate it fully to, to, to the race, right? Is your timing is, is off your, you know, ability (laughs) to absorb what has happened, like, you know, is off to a degree. And, you know, I've seen this in, and you sometimes see this in athletes who bomb a big race, right? They, then they come back three, four weeks later and they're, you know, all of a sudden at a new level or performing well or whatever you have, have you. And a lot of times it's because they've taken the recovery, right? Gotten the fatigue down and then also given their body enough time to absorb and translate these adaptations. When you're coming out of altitude, you see this, you know, very clearly. Yes. (laughs) Because it takes time, like for your body and depending on the athlete, it takes time for your body to like absorb and adapt to everything that you just went went through. Going up to altitude is the same. It takes time Mm. to absorb and adapt before you can handle and are are ready to go. So sometimes this is this like this, oh, they've performed a couple amazing, you know, workouts, it hasn't quite transferred or hasn't quite, you know, given the time to absorb uh, what they're ready 
or what the workouts have been so that they can translate that to race day. Yeah, the buffer against all of this, right, is patience. And that's in short supply, unfortunately, because there's this unrealistic pressure that athletes might feel, coaches might feel, to always show up and show out and say, oh, I ran this time and I'm going to post it. I ran this time, you know, I ran this time. And it's, you know, it's like anything, man. You can, sure, add some sugar to something and it'll taste better quickly, but it won't be nourishing. And so the slow cook method is actually where you'll get the biggest reward. And nine times out of 10, if you take that grain of patience to what you're doing, you'll get a big rebound that will get a big result. And here's, you know, athletes too very frequently get injured, right? They'll get injured for, you know, a month leading into a big race or a big series of races. And their training will just be, you know, really marginal at best or cross training or things that they really just can't get the same level of like um, effort out of that you would if you were just training full steam. And then what happens? They have phenomenal series of races, phenomenal championships. The best example of this is David Waddell at the 1972 Olympics, right? A month couldn't really run, couldn't really train. I mean, nothing. And everyone counted him out. Like he was only finally able to recover from an injury that he was dealing with, you know, a couple days before the rounds. And, but Waddle was able to get this rebound effect from all the work he had done going into that year and in, and during that year to then be able to express it at the highest level in the most difficult crucible. That's the Olympics and winning Olympic gold in the 800, right? And we often you know, forget about the rebound effect. And this is why if you look at, say, Canova's training, right, he sets it up into very discrete blocks, the general period, fundamental or foundational period, the specific period, and then what I call the performance period, or he calls the realization period. And that realization period, if you look at it, it's like two weeks before going into the world championships for his track runners or two weeks going into the big marathon. He's like, Oh, training is, there's no training. It's just jogging. It's, it's nothing. It's nothing. Like he doesn't even tell them what to do. He's like, I don't even care if they run. Like it's so for a guy who's like, so dialed in with like, we have to run at this exact 87%, you know, pace or 102. The last two weeks, he's just like, I don't care. <laughs> he goes, it's nothing. Because he understands like he's put these athletes through the ringer and then they got travel, you know, to like from Africa to like the other end of the world, whatever, you know, their schedules all mixed up. They might. And how many times have you heard this? Right. Like the Kenyans travel plans get, you know, uh, messed up. They have to sleep in the airport. They hadn't run for three days and then they came and almost broke a, you know, a, a road race record. Right. Very common story. Because the lack of neuroses and understanding about the training effect is he understands the rebound effect. And so we think this nice little linear taper and it's like, no, 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 just do almost nothing, <laughs> just enough to keep the nervous system like, and that's really what the last bit of training should be the last month in that performance period, or even the last two weeks going into the marathon. It's just, you're just keeping the nervous system aligned. That's all you're doing. 
because the metabolic system was fine. Like you don't lose mitochondria overnight. You don't lose capillary density overnight. You don't lose, you know, uh, uh, hemoglobin and EPO and red oxygen elevation, but you don't lose that overnight. Like you, the nervous system stuff you lose quick that yeah. dissipates. Yes. Yes. It's that. And that's often what happens is the feeling of flatness is from the nervous system. Right. Yes. Because everyone just, oh, we're going to cut everything. And it's like, no, no, no. Keep the nervous system primed. Yeah. yeah. You got to keep stuff primed. And I'm, I'm glad you brought up the, um, the almost psychology of it because there's, you know, there's, if you're neurotic to degree, that is also one of the reasons why you often see these amazing workouts, awful races. At the beginning, we said, don't call, you know, don't blame your athlete on a head case. And that's not what we're talking about here. But what often happens is you have great workouts, right? The coach gets excited. The athlete gets excited. Expectations get hyped. With hyped up expectations, pressure goes up. The athlete thinks like, oh, I, I'm top of the world. I can do this. I, I've got it. Confidence is through the roof, which is great. But what happens there is sometimes they forget is, yes, I'm in incredible shape, but racing is the same. It hurts no matter what. Mm -hmm. It is not going to be easy. You know, it is going to be difficult. And if you expect it to be easy or if you think, hey, I've got this piece of cake. What happens is the, the moment your expectations like smash into reality, you panic and you freak out, right? It's the human, it's the human condition, the natural reaction where we say, oh shit, like, you know, this was way harder than I expected it to be. Your body goes through stress response, goes up, freak out occurs, shut down your body goes oh wait wait this is way harder than we expected shut them down slow them down whatever you got to mm -hmm. do throw mm -hmm. the effort up and that's often what happens so whenever you're in really good shape whenever you got an athlete who's really excited i get it it's easy to be it's easy to fall into that cycle and be like you know what you're going to do amazing things blah 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 and there should be a degree of that but you as a coach have to be that that guiding star to be like if you see people going too far you gotta like bring them back and be like yeah you're right you're ready to go but just remember bucko like this is gonna be really freaking hard like yeah. this is gonna take a lot even even when you're on so you're bringing those expectations back down to kind of reality and some might think like oh why are you taking away the confidence you're not confidence is having that like knowing that you can do what you're capable of doing. You're just aligning those capabilities with the actual reality of what they're going to experience. Yeah, you, that's a good point. Confidence and cocky, fine line, fine line. Cocky is, I got this swag, no problem. Hey, whatever, you know, the uh, Casey Jones, you know, parable, right? Like, oh no, I just hit, can hit a home run whenever I want. Nope, that's cocky confidence is sober expectations about i've done the work i'm prepared but it's going to take everything i got to express that to my fullest and i'll share a couple stories here you know i asked craig ingles 
couple uh, months ago, like when you ran a 5K, I go, man, what was your expectation going into the 5K when you, you know, ran one? He goes, I just thought it was going to just be the worst, most awful thing ever. Like basically, you know, someone shearing out, you know, uh, my eyelids, like with, you know, tweezers that are on fire. And he goes, I was pleasantly surprised that it didn't really start to, I didn't really start to suffer until 3K in. And I go, okay, good. I mean, that's actually a really good expectation. He thought it was going to be the most difficult thing ever. And he gained confidence when it wasn't difficult from step one. And when he was met with difficulty and fatigue at 3K, he was able to say, oh, I expected this. So I'm going to keep going, um, you know, money in the bank, so to speak. And then I was speaking with uh, Leo Manzano at the, uh, during the Olympic trials. And I go, man, Leo, when did you know you're ready to retire and he goes well it wasn't because my workouts weren't good like oh my workouts are always you know i felt like i just work out forever it's when i couldn't or wasn't willing any longer to go the deep dark place in races and you know alan expressed that same thing as well he's like i just couldn't go the the darkness anymore and what they mean by the darkness is that willingness to just you know suffer and push through this unmanageable un you know um, or this novel wall of difficulty, fatigue, discomfort, right? And that's really the thing is it's this novel discomfort that we can explore in workouts that only is presented to us in races. That's what separates the really good workout runners from like the really good race runners. And my rule is, you know, anytime you've subjected an athlete to novelty for them, so new stimulus, new series of stimulus, new uh, level of stimulus, new um, level of expectation or new type of discomfort, you have to be more patient with the adaptation and response to the novelty than we are when we're just doing things that are like, you know, very familiar. When I was working, say, with Michaela Fricker and she was in 800, you know, in the 800, what we did like the last in 2016 going into olympic trials right she had a phenomenal series of races one adrian martinez classic you know very very competitive at poland track festival i think second to brenda martinez in the eight you know running 201 202 before the super shoe era a lot what was her i mean and she was as a middle distance runner she was racing pretty much every week right so it's like one 800 a week you know repeat going in because that's how you get sharp and race ready is experiencing that so that we're dampening the novelty of what the 800 discomfort is, what that acidosis is, what that deceleration is. So it becomes familiar. And so she has more confidence in like, oh yeah, we can, you know, I can manage this because it's not novel anymore. Right. And that's where a lot of middle distance runners make the mistake of train, 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 and then jump into like a championship race after all this training. And then they get bumped down the first round or they get bumped out you know, in the second round or they're so flat in the final because the novelty of that um, density of that high level of competitiveness is really high. So when that was happening, what was her workouts? It was the same workout every single week, six times 200, lots of rest. <laughs> it was just, that was really it. The last month of training was like a race on, during towards the weekend on a Friday or Saturday, Tuesday, six times 200 and then just rest in like easy jogging in between. That was it. 
it wasn't rocket science, right? But a lot of times we think we gotta be super fancy and oh, well, okay, we gotta make sure we get more stimulus. We gotta make sure we get more. And this is the thing in the performance period, in the realization period, the work is done. There is, that's it. You aren't getting more fit. You are feeling the effects of your hard-earned fitness because fatigue is going down because you're not as fatigued anymore. So you think you're getting more fit, but you're really just expressing the fitness you had because the fatigue should be um, alleviated. And that's the big error I think sometimes we also make too going into championships or a big series of races is we go, oh, the athlete's getting more fit so we can put more stress on them because, you know, and they can for a little while. And that novelty is great, but then it leaves them super flat come race day because now you've introduced a new amount of fatigue into the equation when you should be alleviating fatigue. Yeah, that's a great example, especially I just love the six by 200s. Um, <laughs> <laughs> simple, man, it's, I mean, it's but simple. effective. But yes, it, it works well. And I think that is that is the key of the crucible is like, understanding and having the confidence in your own coaching to be able to step back and be like, you know what? Like the work is done. The hay is in the barn to use the old quote. Like now we just got to maintain this and get them, you know, ready to, you know, ready to go on race day. And I think it's, yeah, it's like, you know, nothing new. It's always easy. Yeah. Like they should be just like bouncing around. Like, Oh my God. As coaches, I think what happens is we just, we have a little insecurity and want to get greedy as well, you know, because you think you're conditioned to think like, Oh, I'm, I'm, uh, you know, losing fitness, all this stuff, et cetera, et cetera. But you're just trying to find that sweet spot where you're doing enough to maintain stuff and, you know, getting out of the way. So your fitness can be expressed and your fatigue dissipates and goes away. And this is, I mean, we are conditioned as you brought earlier, Steve, is we're conditioned to think that suffering and delayed gratification is the only path to success. And when we don't have that, or we don't have a high exposure rate to that, then, you know, we're somehow, quote unquote, cheating the system, or, you know, um, we're somehow usurping the laws of nature. And that's not the case. There is a time and a place for difficulty and hardship and the adversity of that type of work and suffering that the, you know, foundation and specific period of training are all about. But then there's, it also has to be met with this kind of like carefree attitude and, you know, more laissez-faire like Canova. Oh, I don't care what you do the last two weeks. Just don't do a lot <laughs> because, you know, it's only, you can only have that attitude if the foundation and the body of work has preceded it, right? Um, I mean, another good example is like, and I don't think Craig Ingalls would mind me sharing this. It's like, you know, I noticed I go, man, Craig's, you know, talking a little bit after like the Falmouth mile where he raced like, you know, 353 for the mile and then, you know, go back in that pre-race, uh, you know, does his showboat and gets passed at the end there. And I go, you know, man, you just like have a carefree attitude about you. You know, he goes, oh, yeah, I don't care. I'm just, we're having a lot of fun. I go, man, how many beers do you have after Falmouth? And he's like, 20. I go, <laughs> good for you. And it's not like saying, oh, we got to drink a lot. It's what he's saying is it's like, you know, he's here. He's celebrating. He's having a good time with the track season at the end of the, you know, 
uh, Olympic year. He didn't make the Olympic team. That's very deflating and crushing. He could have been woe is me, pity party, and um, you know looked at himself and said, I suck at life. I suck as a runner. He's like, instead he reframed it and said, I'm just gonna have a lot of fun with it. And so racing, you know, road miles or track miles every week, like doing the bare minimum necessary. Yeah, having a little bit more fun with socializing because the work he did to get ready for the Olympics and Olympic trials that didn't manifest at the Olympics prepared him so he could have kind of this, you know, um, this summer tour of fun. And sometimes you need that, right? You need to bring the fun back, however fun is for you, because that's another reason why, you know, I think a lot of athletes have amazing workouts, but all for races is racing's not fun. Racing's pressure bad pressure, racing's distress, racing's expectation. And as a coach, you have to recalibrate and ensure that racing is fun because the workouts in that achievement orientation of, hey, I checked the box, I got the work done. You know, I, I feel like a good soldier. I got an A plus on that workout. I hit or exceeded paces and expectation. That's fun for a lot of athletes and runners. But we gotta make sure that racing's the most fun. Yeah, you know, I think you nailed it there, John. <laughs> I mean, that that often what comes, you know, we talked about the physical components of it. We're now talking a little bit about the psychology and the motivation and all that stuff, but you got to enjoy it. And what often happens is like expectations go up, like pressure goes up, and you stop enjoying the process of it. You stop seeing racing as the challenge that it is. And you start seeing racing as the test. And no no one likes tests, right? But everybody likes to play, or most people like to play games, right? Mm. And racing, mm. racing is a game, right? Yeah, sure, there's competitive, it's challenging, it's all that stuff. It's really freaking hard, hard but like you play the game because you enjoy it because like the challenge of it brings you know brings enjoyment and fun and excitement and all that stuff so that's 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 what we as coaches have to figure out how to do and how to cultivate and how to make sure we're reading our athletes to make sure that they're in the right space where they're enjoying racing and seeing it as a very difficult but fun challenge to take on yeah that tension right of exploring your capabilities versus also being disciplined and having a plan early on. That's, that's the key. So many athletes, especially like in the marathon, right? Like, Oh, even pace race. That's the only way to run physiologically. That's, but it, it degrades the exploratory and playfulness of the endeavor. So yes, maybe the first half of the race is very disciplined with a pace, right? Okay. Run this. But otherwise, what you end up doing is you just tell an athlete, well, the goal of the race is to run a pace and express that pace. And if you don't hit that exactly, something's wrong with you or you failed or, you know, you did a bad job. Then all of a sudden, like you create a different game, a compliance game, which is just pressure on pressure on pressure. And the thing I remember, too, about especially like kind of longer races, I mean, you can be on pace and it has it's plus or minus five seconds either way right so a lot of people freak out oh i'm not running 520 exactly in the marathon but if you run like 525 or 515 but the effort level feels similar and you're not creating you don't start to feel that bear you know um or hit the wall so to speak 
and jumping on your back, then you're, you're good, you're fine. But so, much, so many times we get too rigid. And this is what races are about, is not being hyper, hyper rigid. You have to have this tension of playfulness, but discipline focused. And this is where we lose it sometimes by being too rigid, too disciplined with a race plan, too much. I remember talking to Mike Smith about this and just being like, yeah, the better I got as a coach and the better my athletes performed, the looser race plan I had later on, instead of just trying to script everything and be like, yeah, 300 to go, you're going to run this pace and do this and do that. And like you create this, this, oh, you overdo the recipe and you end up like ruining the cake, unfortunately. You know, you're getting at the central tension and psychology, which is like approach versus avoidance, you know? Mm -hmm. and like that approach where you can explore your capabilities is so important and us as coaches like we have to balance in that tension and make sure that we're giving athletes the freedom to explore so they can they can enjoy the crucible that is racing i mean that that's kind of the bottom line on this stuff yeah i mean that's i've started to actually program into workouts for athletes like the final rep or final series of reps, you know, call it explore, see what you can do, see what you want to do. So maybe you're really fatigued and you only want to run this page. That's fine. Do that. Versus having going in with a pre, um, you know, conceived pace that they have to hit in the final rep. And that's actually what Alan was doing. When you hear about that crazy workout, I was like, Rascal's like, see what you can do. Go free reign. Like, whatever like you've already done 19 times a quarter this is all you already got a great stimulus now just see what you can do have fun with it and that was really a key thing with you know you know talking to alan even talking to centrowitz actually going back to that conversation he's like he's been struggling with like half winning the gold medal right it was actually a, not as much of a blessing as it was a curse because his mindset was for a long time like what else can i do now I just reached the highest pinnacle of the, my profession. What else can I do? And he's never been a time trialer, right? So he's never like, oh, we got to go after this mark. That's not really how he is. He's a racer. He's a competitor. So to him, he doesn't get his jollies from hitting a time. He gets it from kicking ass. And you struggle with that. And that's why like the greats, like the Jordans, the Kipchogis, you know, the Allison Felixes, they keep competing even after they've achieved the highest uh, reward and highest honors, because the novelty of the game, playing the game is the infinite game. And so it's this difference between this finite mindset of I got it and now what else versus like, we're just going to keep playing. And this is what we esteem with those uh, athletes and competitors who have longevity in their career they know every season's a new season that's different. It's kind of like a video game, right? You know, when I talked to Mike Smith too, he's like, every season's a new season. It's like we press the restart button on the video game console. We start all over. What, and we know this in psychology too. We have this, um, uh, this uh, uh, procession bias or succession bias where in um, casinos, right? People will say, oh, because the roulette table landed on black next time, I'm going to bet red. And it's like, no, no, no. Everyone's its own unique individual 
um, experience, exp um, endeavor, right? Just because the roulette table was on black the previous time doesn't mean it's not going to be black again because of the quote unquote 50-50 chance. It's not the yeah. case. And we have to remind ourselves of that bias and just remember every new se every season is a reset button's been pressed. Spot on. All right. So we've got, man, we've got, we span the gamut here. We've gone from the physiology of it, the fitness fatigue. We've gone over the psychology. We've gone over stories from, you know, two of the best runners or several actually of the best yes, runners in, in U.S. history um, from mile 1500 runners to marathon. Woo. That was fun. Yes. <laughs> you know, that's what I say. And you know what? If you want to have more fun, I'm going to throw this plug in. The Running Scholar Program sign up. It's where John and I nerd out so that you can be better coaches. And you are now, thanks to the Scholar Clubhouse, you can nerd out with us all the time on your phone. So join in. Have fun. That's what we're all about. Be merry. It's a celebration.